Now we continue in our series on Ephesians, and we've been hovering over Ephesians 1 for quite some time. I think the pinnacle of it all was, frankly, last week as we focused on the plan that God has to bring all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. And I think it's so much the pinnacle that if you missed it uh, for providentially hindered reasons, then I encourage you, please, please, to go back and pick up that sermon so that you see the flow and the logic of everything that the Apostle Paul is saying in this first chapter of Ephesians. Our focus this morning, not exclusively, but primarily, will be on verses 13 and 14, but I would like to again read from verse 3 through 14. Let's bow in prayer. Before reading your holy word, Heavenly Father, we would acknowledge in this day of unbelief when people all around us do not know what to believe that by your grace we do. We have entrusted our souls to Jesus Christ and his gospel is true, your word is true. And we base our lives upon your promise. We ask, therefore, that assurance of faith will be fostered as the word of God is proclaimed and we come to the table of the Lord. And as always, we ask that if there are those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would open their hearts, that they may put their trust in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit works and grants them saving faith. And so we come to your word again, we cling to your promise, and we pray that because you know every heart that you would bless the word, yes, now in this service, but also in ways that are incalculable, ways we can't see way down the line, that you would bless the preached word to the hearts and lives of your people and especially of our children who are growing up under the hearing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians Chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, this is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. People of God, the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can never be lost. The true believer purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, can never lose that salvation. 
Now, our Reformation fathers stressed this, Calvin and others, because in the time of the Protestant Reformation, they were appropriately reacting to the unbiblical teaching of the medieval Roman Catholic Church that said it was impossible for someone to be assured of his salvation in this life, with the exception of of those who perhaps received some divine immediate revelation, it was impossible for anyone to really know that he was saved in this life. Against that pastoral cruelty, the Protestant reformers turned back to the Word of God, especially the Apostle Paul, and Luther and Calvin and others proclaimed that, yes, we can know that we are saved in this world for time and for eternity. You can know that you are eternally saved. Unhappily, in Protestant circles and in various denominations, especially those that are connected with Methodism or the so-called Churches of Christ or others, there are those who say that a saved person can be lost, that you can actually lose your salvation. But the Word of God is abundantly clear on this matter. And the reason that the Apostle Paul is unpacking these truths in the first chapter of Ephesians is so that God's people will be assured of their relationship with God. We have the encouragement of assurance in that we are elect, we are adopted, we are redeemed by Christ's blood, we are secure in union with a risen and ascended Lord, and we are sealed with a down payment, the Holy Spirit guaranteeing that we will receive our inheritance according to the passage we have read this morning. So I want us to look at this truth. The saved person is always saved that we are secure, and what that has to say to you and me about our assurance of a relationship with God. And I want us to see these things. First of all, the security of God's purpose. The security of God's purpose underlies the assurance of our faith. The security of God's purpose. And for this, I want to go back to verse 11, though we dwelt on this verse last week, and remind you of a couple of things here. Look at verse 11. In Him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so we are specifically told in this passage that believers are predestined to an inheritance. The Apostle Paul does not reveal election in verse 11 and predestination in verse 6 and predestination in verse 11 because he wants to confuse believers. These things are revealed by God the Holy Spirit through Paul because he wants to assure you of your security in Christ and your relationship with Him. An inheritance is not earned. It is not worked for. We do not labor for it. It is not something that comes by merit. It comes by grace. And you have an inheritance given to you in sovereign grace. God's plan to bring us to our inheritance is predestined. And as we said last time, that means that God's plan for His people is an invincible plan. Nothing can frustrate God's eternal plan to save His own. And here we have the security of God's purpose. May I remind you again of the language of purpose that is found particularly in verse 11. In addition to the word predestined, we find that He works, which is divine providence. All things, that's the extent of God's moral government, 
after the counsel, that is God's eternal decree, of his own will, that's the first cause behind God's plan. Hence, we live as believers now as those who have this inheritance and are confident of God's invincible plan to bring us to the inheritance that he has promised us. We live, come what may, in the security of God's purpose for us. And so, people of God, what underscores your assurance of faith is the security that God has promised because behind the salvation that he has given to you by grace is his eternal plan and purpose to save you from your sins. And nothing can take you from the Father's hand. Uh, Keeping your finger here, turn to Romans chapter 8. And let's read again those familiar verses in Romans chapter 8. The entire chapter actually is about assurance. But I have in mind verses 28 through 31 or 30 perhaps. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we know that glorification is something future, but he writes of glorification as something that is right now, because it is so certain. And God's plan is behind it. And so, people of God, we see the security that we have because of God's purpose to save us from our sins. Don't doubt that purpose. Don't question that purpose. Now, secondly, we see the security of the gospel. The security of the gospel. And by this I mean the security of having believed the gospel message. We find it here in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The security of the gospel. Those included in Christ believe the word of truth. Now those are powerful words. The word of truth? How can Paul speak of the word of truth? He can speak of the word of truth because God's word is self-attesting. Its evidences are within itself. So that it is abnormal to doubt God's word. And there can be no certainty without God's word. And the only way in which you can be certain of anything is by basing your life upon God's word, the word of truth. Faith may be sure because of the object of our faith who is the risen Christ proclaimed in the word of truth. You know how Paul puts it in another place. This is a trustworthy saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. It is a trustworthy saying. The security of the gospel comes from the fact that the gospel is true. God's word is true. And there is no surer ground than Holy Scripture. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian, said this, God himself is the final ground of my faith in God. And that's a good statement. There is nothing more certain than God himself. 
and God himself is the final ground of my faith in God. But notice that as we believe the gospel that he says this word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. See it again in verse 13, and him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And it's very important that we pick up on the word salvation. In the ancient world, just as in our own, there were all sorts of religions and philosophies that promised salvation. The Greco-Roman pantheon, animism, emperor worship with its language of savior and lord being applied to the emperor, the mystery religions from the east, occultism and so forth, all of which taught self-salvation. And if you want to know the bottom line between the truth as it is in Jesus and the world religions, it's right here. All world religions teach that you are saved by the work that you do. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches you're saved by the grace of God through what Christ did for you. Salvation is a unique word in Paul's vocabulary, for it includes salvation from the final manifestation of the wrath of God which is coming upon this world. And the believer can be certain that he will not experience that wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8, 1. Do you realize in this world of unbelief how rare and wonderful it is to be able to confess, I believe? Do you know how rare it is to rear children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord who are able to confess from the heart? I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It is rare indeed in this world. But it's true for God's people. Secure, you are secure because the gospel that you believe is true. And because it is true, the gospel really saves And in life, when you cannot see things clearly and you cannot understand what God is doing in your life, believer, you cast your anchor right here. It's essential to cast your anchor right here. Everything may seem to fall apart, but the gospel is true. God's plan for me is a good plan. I trust him and I trust his word. You know, when you come to a bridge in a storm and you must cross that bridge, but you cannot see because it's covered by water, you can't tell where the bridge is. It's pretty important, isn't it, when you step out that the bridge is there and that it's firm under your feet? There are many times in life in which the problems and difficulties are so very great that the water seems to flow over the bridge. Step out, believer, because the gospel is true. It's his word of salvation. The bridge is there. It's firm. The gospel is solid. And in Christ you are secure. And there is nothing more than this gospel. No second work of grace. Not some experience for you to pursue. What Christ has done is the only ground of our salvation. What Christ has done is the only ground of our assurance of faith. It is not earned by works. It is received by faith in Christ alone. Now, there's a third element of our security found in this passage. And the third is this. The security of sealing. S-E-A-L-I-N-G. Sealing. The security of being sealed 
by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13 again. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Spirit, promised through the prophets, promised by Christ in Acts 1-4, poured out upon the church on Pentecost, that same Spirit that baptizes all of God's people into one body, that is the promised Spirit who now seals us for time and for eternity. Now I need to say this because it's important. A lot of people have confused ideas about this, this doctrine of sealing and this word sealing in this passage and other passages. And you know that I respect the Puritans a great deal, but I just have to say it. Many of the Puritans, many leading Puritans really misled us here. And I respect, I only mention the name because he's a popularizer of the view. I think one of the greatest men that ever walked the face of the earth was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he followed the Puritans on this. And I think it's a great mistake, and I think you need to know. They say that sealing is a second work of grace after conversion. And it's something that you really can't have strong assurance unless you've had this second work of grace down here. Unless you have this additional experience that they call sealing and think they find in this passage. That the great assurance comes when you have some overwhelming experience, this mystical experience that they call sealing. So some of the Puritans taught Thomas Brooks that assurance is obtained only by a few. Thomas Goodwin says that we should pursue sealing. We should sue for it, he says, pursue sealing and not rest in believing only. Not rest in believing only? Uh, that's, that's so far removed uh, from biblical Christianity at this point. These men and others see sealing as a mystical experience to be pursued and sought after, but that was not true of Calvin, it was not true of Luther, it was not true of the Reformers. You see, sealing is not some mystical experience to be sought for subsequent to conversion. The grammar won't allow it. I think it's very plain here that the Apostle Paul links sealing with believing and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul connects these things. It accompanies the hearing of the word of truth. And assurance of salvation also is cultivated in the same way by hearing the word of truth. God assures his children by believing in Christ. So what is this sealing anyway? What does he mean? Well, the term sphragis, seal, is used in a variety of ways in Scripture. And even though I think Paul the Apostle has one element particularly in mind, it's possible that he has a number of things in mind as he uses this word. First of all, a seal, you might recall, was a mark of ownership. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thine heart. It's a mark of ownership that you are the beloved's. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. The Spirit is God's testimony within our hearts that we belong to Him, that we are His. It's a mark of ownership. But a seal also in the ancient world was a guarantee that something was genuine. In Esther 3.12, the document that is sealed with the king's signet ring showed that it was the king's, that it was real, that it was genuine. Uh, when we notarize today, we notarize saying that something is valid. Same idea. In John 6, 27, for on him, speaking of Jesus, 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. That is to say, he is the genuine Son of God. But there's another element of sealing that we find in the use of this word in the ancient world, and it's protection from tampering. Protection from tampering. In Matthew 27, 66, the tomb was sealed. Uh, in part that it might be designated that it was Rome's seal, but also so that it will be tamper-proof. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, you see how Paul uses these terms again in another passage. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and following, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Or turning back to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Ephesians 4 verse 30. The Apostle Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit makes us ultimately tamper-proof. How many of you at Christmas have gotten these, um, these uh, containers of cookies? You know, the Danish cookies and so forth. You, you see them at Christmas time. And they have this tape around them. And have you ever tried to get in those things? Somebody needs to let me know what to do because I, always, I pull a little and it doesn't come. And it, the things are almost tamper-proof. You just can't get in the box. Well, in a far, far greater way, the Holy Spirit does seal us and we are tamper-proof. That is to say, we can never fall away from what God has promised. The inheritance really is ours because we are sealed for that inheritance And pick away as someone might or the devil does. No one can take us from the Father's hand. So Paul tells us that the Spirit testifies to our spirit, that we are God's children in the 8th chapter of Romans. Using the Word, the Spirit convinces us that we are God's children. And so the Spirit makes us tamper-proof and assures believers of this reality. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with this promised Holy Spirit all the way until the receipt of your inheritance when Jesus comes again. But he says something else. He says that the Holy Spirit not only serves as a seal, but fourthly, the fourth element of security, is the security of a down payment. The security of a down payment. Now look at these verses again, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, that word is down payment, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now the word that is translated here in the ESV, guarantee, and some translations down payment, is the word arabon. And it was used in the world of the Apostle Paul as a commercial term. It means a partial price that is paid securing the full payment. It is payment, however, in kind. And this is very important. It is not only payment, it is payment in 
kind. Not a quantity of grain given toward a consignment of oil, but of money that is followed by the balance in cash. So why is this important that you have a down payment, an arabon, that is of the same nature, of the same kind? It's important for this reason. Because the present possession of the Holy Spirit anticipates the full glory of the Spirit. That's why. Having the Spirit now is anticipatory of the fullness that we receive at the coming of Jesus Christ. As Paul underscores in 2 Corinthians 1.22 and also again in 2 Corinthians 5.5. Charles Hodge put it this way, It is because the Spirit is an earnest of our inheritance that His indwelling is a seal. And until the redemption of those who are God's possession means that redemption... Redemption is used here in the same way that Paul uses it in Romans 8.32 to mean the return of Christ. You are sealed and there is a down payment guaranteeing that you are His all the way until the day of judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is a pledge, an installment. I owe you $10 and you give uh, the, the, the promissory note, and I give you a dollar on that $10. And then you come to settle up the account, and I give you the remaining $9. Payment in kind. The Holy Spirit indwells you as payment in kind of what you're going to receive in the fullness of your inheritance. The Holy Spirit is not only a pledge, the Holy Spirit is an installment Do you get it? If you don't, please ask me later. This is so important. The Holy Spirit who indwells you is not only a down payment, but a down payment of the same kind. The Spirit who indwells you, the Spirit of glory and grace that you will know and experience without hindrance when Jesus comes again already indwelling you, this means that you are secure in Christ. And God has pledged himself to bestow this inheritance. You know, I read somewhere that both Corinth and Ephesus were centers for the lumber industry. Logs would be sent from the Black Sea, and notice would be sent to the firms, the various firms that the rafts were in the harbor. The logs were examined, earnest money was paid, and the logs were sealed so that when the logs were drawn out many weeks later, each firm would take the log with its seal on it. The earnest of your inheritance has been given. The seal of the Holy Spirit is within you. And when Jesus comes again, he will have no trouble identifying you and pulling you out. And notice this. He says here at the end of verse 14, until we acquire possession of it, the possession of that inheritance, to the praise of His glory. So what is the final, most ultimate basis for the security of the believer in Christ? God says, I'm doing this to display my attributes. I'm doing this for 
my own glory. So I want to draw some applications in addition to the ones we've mentioned so far. I want to draw some applications from these truths. And I want to emphasize that assurance should be ours as believers in Christ. Because believers are secure in Christ, believers can be assured of their salvation in Christ. As Calvin put it, faith is destroyed as soon as certainty is taken away. And if you're a believer in Christ, you can be sure, you ought to be sure of your relationship with Him. So here are some applications I want to draw. First, certainty of forgiveness comes by believing the gospel. Certainty of forgiveness comes by believing the gospel. It is not earned. It is not obtained by works. And when we believe, we are justified and assurance comes with it. Christ earned your assurance for you, believer. You really should enjoy it. It's a benefit of the gospel that he wants you to enjoy. Certainty of forgiveness comes by believing the gospel. Secondly, assurance of your salvation, this is the norm for God's people. The norm. Can we be acquitted from our guilt in a court of law and not know that the judge has been merciful to us? Can we have the comforter but have no comfort? Can a woman be married to a loving husband without knowing she belongs to him? In a far greater way, assurance is the norm for God's people. Which leads me to say thirdly, if your assurance is clouded over, though there might be several reasons, I'm going to mention the top two. If your assurance is clouded over, The top two reasons are these. Either you've received some really bad teaching on this subject. I heard of a church with over a thousand members recently with only five people coming to the communion table. And the minister was constantly warning them that maybe that's too many. You see, it's based in that view, that that terrible view that I mentioned earlier. That's not right. Bad teaching. But if your assurance is clouded, it can also be because of consistent disobedience. Because you're not believing and repenting every day. Consistent disobedience. Which if you were a Christian, you will not be able to continue in, but you can for a time. Consistent disobedience. Works are evidences of our justification. We are not justified by our works. Holiness of life is a confirmation of our salvation, but never the ground. The ground is the merit of Christ alone. But understanding these things can be obscured by consistent disobedience. Listen to me. I think these are the words of my friend Sinclair Ferguson. High degrees of assurance are never consistent with low degrees of obedience. High degrees of assurance are never consistent with low degrees of obedience. The obedience is not the ground of your assurance, but if you constantly disobey, it will obscure your sense of assurance. But now let me say this, fourthly, assurance is not earned or obtained by works. I want to stress it. One of the great confessions of faith from the Protestant Reformation is the Belgic Confession 
And in chapter 24, it has these lovely words. We would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of the Son of God. So if you rely upon the merit of the Son of God in your place, really trust the merit of Christ, really trust what Christ has done for you, then your conscience will not be continually vexed. And that leads me to say this, fifthly, if you struggle with assurance of faith, I mean the truth of it, the doctrine of it, the realization of it, then I charge you to study this chapter and to study the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. You remember that chapter? Romans chapter 8, we groan for the resurrection of the body, that's assurance. We know all things work together for good, that's assurance. We know that Christ died for us and no one can lay any charge against us, that's assurance. We know that Christ intercedes for us, that's assurance. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Indeed, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, that is assurance of faith. I can hear the objection. Someone says, doesn't Paul say that we should examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith? And doesn't Peter say that we must make our calling and election sure? Absolutely. But the purpose of those exhortations is to get you focused again on the gospel and not on yourself. The purpose is not for God's people to rake around in doubt, but to come out of yourselves into Christ by faith. So the idea that the Father gives assurance to a very few of His children cannot be condemned too strongly. What kind of father is it that wants his children to be in doubt about his love? The father sent his son for you. He died for you, believer. Do you think that he wants you to live in doubt about that? Do you think that he wants you to live in terror, that he hates you and will condemn you when he sent his son to save you and sent his Holy Spirit to indwell you? Do you think he wants you wallowing in a doctrine of works and doubt? Does not the Savior say, let not your hearts be troubled? You believe in God, believe also in me. Believer, do not cry out constantly, God, do you love me? But cry out in faith, Abba, Father. I want you to listen to the words of the Dutch theologian Herman Bovink. These are good words. In numerous ways, the gospel has often been transformed into a law. God's gift turned into a demand. And his promises made into conditions. In the Roman Catholic Church, good works had to come first. And in the Protestant churches, many kinds of experiences were necessary before one could truly believe and appropriate this rich gospel of God's grace. The priests or the guardians of the spiritual life only granted believers the right and the freedom of the Spirit to believe as the end product the fruit of a series of good works or genuine inner experiences. Faith was separated from its object, the grace of God in Christ by a long list of activities, and it was duty-bound to constant examination of and reflection on its own development. Seeking in vain within itself and in the tossing ways of experience that which it could only find outside of itself in Christ, faith lost its Certainty. 
By its very nature and essence, faith can find rest in nothing but a word from God, a promise from the Lord. Any other ground makes it shaky because it is human and therefore shifting and unreliable. Only a word from God can give life to our souls and provide an immovable foundation for the building of our hope. When all human things obtruding between God's grace and our faith are eliminated, and when our faith fastens on God's promises directly and immediately, then faith will be certain and unshakable. Then faith no longer rests on a subjective, changeable foundation, but on the objective, abiding foundation. The unshakableness of the foundation is conveyed directly to the person who, rescued from life's shipwreck, plants both feet firmly on it in faith. When the plant of faith is allowed to take root in the ground of God's promises, it will naturally bear the fruit of certainty. The deeper and firmer the roots anchor themselves in this ground, the stronger and taller it will grow, and the richer will be its fruit. Now I ask you, are those not wonderful words? The deeper you ground yourself in the promises of God, the deeper and firmer your assurance of salvation will be. The more you sever yourself from the word proclaimed from the promises that are given to us in Scripture and live without them, then the more shaky your assurance will be. So people of God, assurance can be cultivated and the God-ordained means for cultivating assurance is not morbid introspection, is not constantly looking for evidences of God in the work of the soul, is not mystical experiences, is not a second work of grace. But God's way of cultivating assurance is listening in faith to the preached word and read in which you hear God's promise and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in which we take God's promise into our very mouths. And so I close with these words from the writer of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, therefore, my brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He means near in communion with God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.